Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Training Unleashed, the show that will help you design and deliver training that's off the chain and will make a difference. Now, here's your host, Evan Hackle. Hello, everyone, and welcome to, I think it's going to be like one of the most interesting episodes of Training Unleashed ever. And we're going to talk about something that we've never talked about in 150 some odd episodes. But before we go, I want a quick shout out to the C-Suite Radio and C-Suite TV for all their support. Deeply appreciate them. Our guest today is Kia Roberts. Uh, Kia is the founder and principal of Triangle Investigations. And here's the thing. There's a lot of talk about sexual harassment and that we need to pay a lot more attention to that today. There's a lot of talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we've got to talk a lot about that today. What we have yet to talk about on the show is how do you go about handling an issue or handling a problem? And that's what Kia is really going to do. I'm going to violate my cardinal rule of not having the guest give a bio because normally I just like to get into the topic and, and then a lot of people, they want to, can read up on the guest or go to their websites. But she has an incredible bio. <laughs> I'm super impressed. So, Kia, let's start with your bio. Tell us a little bit about your background because it's, it's amazing. Got it. Thank you so much, Evan. I appreciate it. So I'm Kia Roberts, and I'm the founder and principal of Triangle Investigations. And Triangle Investigations is a group of lawyers and expert investigators conducting misconduct investigations within workplaces, schools, and other organizations. So when I say misconduct, think sexual harassment, discrimination, retaliation. And then we additionally do some sexual assault and abuse investigations on college campuses and within private schools. Prior to founding Triangle, I was the first ever director of investigations for the NFL, where I did investigations into NFL players and employees accused of violating the NFL's code of conduct. So that was everything from sexual harassment, workplace bullying, all the way to the really, really high profile player incidents involving allegations of domestic violence, sexual abuse, animal abuse, and child abuse. Prior to the NFL, I spent about a decade as a prosecutor in the district attorney's office here in Brooklyn, New York. I finished my time there as a homicide prosecutor doing murder cases. I got my law degree at Vanderbilt. I got my undergraduate degree at Duke. I grew up in New Orleans and I live in Brooklyn with my husband and two little kids. So that's all about me and all about the business. Well, I, I do think it's an amazing background. Your time as a homicide prosecutor had to be 
fascinating. The NFL itself, just uh, especially the thing that I think is impressive is that you really started that. Right. I mean, that that to me, that to me is amazing. Thank you. So th this is where I want to start this conversation off. It's one thing to have training. And, and the one thing that I'm finding out is a lot of people don't have training, meaning they don't actually do training. Uh, and there's, there's some really big risk to it, you know, in terms of if something bad happens and you get sued, you're going to get sued for, uh, for your lawyer, you know, what's the term when you get for things beyond the actual damages, punitive, um, punitive damages. And, you know, when you've been neglectful, you get a lot more punitive damages. But there's another part of this that I really think is important is how do you properly, when someone raises their hand, and I mean that figuratively, someone makes a report, how do you treat it with seriousness, uh, with the proper respect, uh, and properly investigate it and handle it? Because from what I can tell my work experience and my consulting experience, this tends to be a major problem that companies don't know. Right. So, I mean, this is a straight off question. What are the best practices when, you know, for, you know, a person is identified, there's an issue. What should a company do? Right. So the first step is that companies really need to examine what their reporting processes are. So especially in the midst of the pandemic, a lot of organizations realized that they really didn't have consistent and comprehensive reporting mechanisms for people to report sexual harassment, discrimination, retaliation. So things weren't getting to the level of the organization that they needed to get in order for it to be properly addressed. So I would say the first step is for the company to really think about how are people reporting what's going on? Are they encouraged to go to their manager? Are they encouraged to go to human resources? Do we have a hotline for employees to use? And once they have their arms around that, to really think through how often are we learning about these allegations? Because, you know, I sometimes we talk about, you know, whose triangle is client-based. And I say triangle's client base is anywhere where sexual harassment, discrimination, and retaliation can occur, which means everywhere, right? Yeah. And that's small organizations, that's Fortune 500 companies, that's nonprofits. Um, we have a pretty large investigation going on right now involving a really national, um, large national church group. So anywhere that it can occur, you need to make sure that you have those reporting processes in place. And once you learn of a concern or a specific report about misconduct, really being in a position where you respond to that complaint robustly and as quickly as possible, delays in responding to allegations of misconduct can be huge in terms of legal liability and really opens up a company to some very specific problems if concerns aren't responded to in a rapid manner. So you just brought up, you know, avenues, a hotline, uh, which for a small company maybe doesn't make a lot of sense, but big companies probably makes a lot of sense. Talking to your, to the person you report to or human resources, what is generally the best practice? Is it better to have someone talk to their supervisor? Obviously not if that's the person, um, or is it better to have it go through human resources in, in your experience, what would be, the, the, and I would assume the hotline's best, but I'll let you answer the question. Right. So I wouldn't say that we necessarily would say HR is better than your manager. But one thing that we really impress upon the organizations that we work with is that 
you have to have a mandatory reporting requirement with respect to the person who receives the complaint, right? So a lot of the investigations that we get, it is because unfortunately things have blown up, right? They're already in the press, you're in the New York Times, you know, a group of employees has taken to Glassdoor or social media to talk about their experience within the organization and how poor it was. And what we see in a lot of these instances is that an employee has reported something to their manager, but for whatever reason, the manager didn't take it where it needed to go. So the manager either said, I'm sorry to hear that, or you know, I'm not trying to get involved because of office politics, et cetera. And then things fester to the point that they explode. So one thing that we put in place, of course, HR is going to usually see it through. But when a manager receives a complaint about misconduct from an employee, that they have to report that up to a designated person within the human resources or employee relations space to make sure that it's appropriately addressed. I totally agree with you. And I think some of the worst advice that people ever get is to, you know, relax and, and you know, let's see if it blows over or, you know, that type of thing, which is really bad. Um, one of the things I've noticed in my work career is that if the problem person, and this is after the investigation, et cetera, is in fact a high producer, whether it's in sales, whether they're you know, just a really talented engineer, whatever it is, there's a different standard. Yeah. Um, and what I've also experienced is there is no such thing as a secret. Um, and I, let's just take a few moments and just talk about the cost of neglect and what happens when companies allow a high performer to get away with something that they absolutely should not have gotten away with. Uh, how does that impact companies? Got it. So what I think has been fascinating over the last several years, right? So we're living in this moment that we're still seeing the um, impact of the Me Too movement and how that's working within organizations and how they're addressing sexual harassment. And then we're living in this moment where we're walking through the impact of the social justice protests of last year and how that's impacting how organizations respond to allegations of discrimination based on race and ethnicity. And um, an anchor on CNN said this like a few months ago and it was so good and like scribbled it down and I stole it and it's mine now, but they talked about that we're in this moment where there's been a democratization of the microphone. And what the democratization of the microphone means is, you know, 15 years ago, if you didn't like the way that you were being treated within an organization, you probably maybe would go to HR or you would deal with it or you might leave. That is not really the, the sphere of options at this point, right? So you can take to social media. You can write a post on Medium. You can get a group of other similarly disgruntled and frustrated employees and call the New York Times or a news outlet that might be interested in it. And I'm saying all that to say, I think that we are leaving the era of organizations making excuses for high performers and organizations that are doing that do so at their own peril. I mean, the cost of poor brand association, cancel culture, social media backlash has just really become extreme. Um, we helped a few organizations last year with conducting what we call accountability audits, right? So we got into the organization, talked to employees or organization members, and really pinpointed 
problem points and pain areas. Unfortunately, a lot of those accountability audits were done in response to things blowing up, CEOs being forced to apologize and step down, and then we're coming in to do a complete review of the organization. Forward-thinking organizations, some of whom we're working with at this moment, are getting their accountability audits done in order to avoid things blowing up. So, you know, those are kind of like the two different angles from which to approach the issue. You know, I love everything you just said from, I don't love any of it. I mean, I think it's bad. <laughs> the whole thing is a bad topic. But I, 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 what I appreciate would be the right term of what you said is the danger of publicity and Glassdoor and, and, and the New York Times, et cetera. Uh, but I just add that there's an internal issue too which is you're gonna lose good talent. You're gonna be people that will not accept working in that environment. You don't think you're gonna lose it. You, you know, you think, oh my God, I can do this and no one's gonna notice and, and it's gonna keep it a secret and then, then, it, then it doesn't. But you said something in your answer that I think we really need to delve into, which is an accountability audit. What is an accountability audit? How does a company do one? So an accountability audit involves us coming to your organization. And the first thing we do with you is we set the scope of the audit. So is there a particular group of your organization that you're particularly concerned about? So is that your black employees? Is that your, you know, your employees that are working parents or do you want to open it up to all employees? And we methodically work our way through anyone and everyone that wants to speak to us about their employee experience. At the conclusion of the accountability audit, we deliver the client with a final investigative report saying, these are pain points within your employee experience. These are specific solutions we have for going forward because you can't manage what you can't measure. And a lot of organizations, unfortunately, wait for litigation or bad press to unearth issues within their organization. Uh, I think that is a very important step because that discovery set makes sense. So let's talk about an investigation. Okay. And I know from our pre-talk, some companies actually have people on their team that their job is to investigate. Maybe it's not their full-time, but it's part of their role. I'm sure really big organizations might have teams. Yes. And then there are some organizations that, that don't have anybody with that role. Um, and, but if, let's just start and assume you have an investigator for a second, or you're doing, somebody is being engaged to do that investigation. Right. What does an investigator do? How do they actually do the work? Right, right. So with respect to organizations that don't have the bandwidth to perform their own investigations, we can come in and conduct those investigations. Additionally, for organizations that perhaps it's just your HR director, that that's within their purview, that we, you know they're doing benefits and payroll, and then they're also doing the occasional HR investigation, we can come in and really train them on making sure that they're conducting investigations in the most robust and legally sound way possible. So, you know, performing an investigation starts with, you know, I call it like imagine a funnel. So someone makes an allegation and you start up the investigation at the top of the funnel. You just let them talk and you let them talk about anything and all, you know, everything concerns that they've had or specific complaints. And then that gives you the roadmap for going forward. So, you know, after that first interview with the person making the complaint, you should have a roadmap of where it's going and a general idea of who you need to speak to. 
there are a few key things that have to happen during the course of the investigation. So you have to be very fair and consistent with assessing the credibility of the people that you're speaking to. And then the investigation needs to conclude with a finding that either there's sufficient evidence to find that the reported party engaged in the behavior that they're accused of behaving in, or that there's not sufficient evidence. And then there really needs to be a process for following up with the person who made the original complaint to let them know what the outcome of the complaint was. Um, you know, sometimes we've been brought into organizations because, you know, people felt like they were reporting into a black hole and says, you know, I told HR that this was going on six months ago and they told me they were going to look into it and I don't know what happened and I don't know what the resolution to this was, if any. So we help organizations build out that end-to-end -end process. And one of my favorite things to say, um, the investigation you know, is the right thing to do from an employee experience perspective, a legal liability perspective, but you know, more than anything, the investigation is an insurance policy, right? Because if someone decides to go retain attorney, you know, an attorney one, two, five years down the road, it's hugely helpful for organizations from a risk management perspective to say, we did a complete investigation end to end. Here are our files. This is the step, these are the steps that we took as a responsible and responsive organization. So what I'm hearing from you is speed is important, that communication is important, that you don't want the person that filed the complaint to, to feel like they're, you know, completely left in the dark. Um, and you do your investigation, you have you have a finding. Let's let's now go the next step okay and let's just assume in this case that the person uh that filed the complaint uh after the investigation you found the complaint to be valid okay um and let's just say for the sake of discussion that the employee is going to be terminated that 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 caused the complaint um so the employee gets terminated how should the company communicate this and let me complicate this a little bit more because I had a friend of mine who had a situation very similar to this where they did an investigation, they did terminate the employee and the company's basic response was no comment. And then the employee felt that no one in the company really knew and that there were rumors and everyone was talking about them and that it was very uncomfortable for the employee. Um, and the employee eventually left that company because they just felt like um, uh, not only that, they felt like senior management was vindictive too, but that's maybe, that's not really what I'm getting at here. Right. Uh, what I'm really getting at is how do you communicate what happened in a responsible way? Um, because it can be, you know, it, I, I think I've said enough. I'm going to let you answer the question. Got it. So, you know, there's a range of options for how organizations can deliver those findings. So there are organizations that, you know, really pride themselves on being super transparent. So at the conclusion of an investigation, um, let's say, for example, the, the person was terminated, the person who was engaged to have, um, alleged to have engaged in the misconduct. So we've seen organizations send an email to all employees you know, such and such is departing, you know, we 
conducted a thorough and independent investigation and found that they engaged in conduct that was violative of the company's policies and not in line with the culture that we're trying to create here. You know, so I've seen it that way, like the complete transparent end of it. And then I've seen, you know, the person who originally made the complaint being brought in by human resources to say, these are the steps that we've taken. Please keep it under wraps. Please don't discuss it with anyone. So there is a range of approaches that organizations can take. But the fact of the matter is they have to pick at least one. It can't be that HR makes a decision and never really communicates what occurred back to the person who made the original report. Well, I think consistency is important. What is the risk to the organization of being transparent from a liability standpoint from the person that was done? I mean, you know, your prosecutor, these are not criminal proceedings, right? It's an right. investigation. Right. Um, so the person is found in the investigation to have violated company rules. Um, but there wasn't a full due process like you would have in court. Right. Um, you used the word alleged. I listened very carefully to you saying that, and I know it wasn't an accident. Right. Um, what's the risk to the company for being transparent? So the risk to the company for being transparent is that the employee somehow feels like, you know, this was embarrassing information that was shared about them that maybe could affect their future career prospects. Um, the companies are usually on pretty sound footing to do that because, you know, you have a code of conduct that explains exactly what the range of consequences are for engaging in behavior that's in violation of that code of conduct. So generally, most companies will say, well, you know, we did a complete end-to-end -end investigation. And the fact of the matter is there was sufficient evidence to found that you sexually harassed this person or whatever it might be. When organizations are transparent, they're really not going into the details of what occurred, right? So they're not saying, you know, John sexually harassed Sue eight times over the past six months, right? Yeah. They will generally keep it somewhat vague and say, you know, there was, you know, accusations that this person engaged in conduct that was not consistent with our policies and procedures. And this is the action that we've taken in response to that. So from a liability perspective, companies are usually pretty well protected um, because the code of conduct spells out, you know, what employees should and should not be doing within the workplace. Tortal Training's Learning Matter experts are passionate about designing effective solutions that move the needle. Whether your organization needs development of e-learning courses, instructor-led training, or assistance with creating optimized electronic versions of employee handbooks, our team can help. To learn more, visit tortle.com slash learning dash development. So um, you're saying something that everyone here is perked up, code of conduct, code of conduct. I'm thinking about my business, don't have one. <laughs> um, and <laughs> um, I think uh, that's probably one of the first things that people should take from this is right. you need a code of conduct. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we can help organizations with creating those codes of conduct. You know, every organization is a different organism, right? So there's certain issues within some organizations that don't appear as much in other organizations. And we can write a code of conduct that's comprehensive and speaks to specific organization issues. Yeah. So that that's that's low hanging fruit, because I would think that you would really you would really need that. 
Right. Um, because otherwise it's harder, I would think, to dismiss somebody without clarity that you have that you that you have you have a code you have a code of conduct. Right. My next question really has to do with the future of the person that experienced the uh, the uh, violation. Mm -hmm. How does the company properly protect that person so that their career isn't interrupted, that they um, that they can comfortably stay with the company? Right. Right. So one of the things that has to be communicated to anyone that's in the universe of the person who made the complaint is that retaliation of any sort will not be tolerated. And that has to be reiterated again and again and again. Besides just being wrong, um, retaliation suits can be extremely costly, right? Um, if an employee is successful in saying, you know, I made this complaint and I was retaliated against, and then human resources or whoever the manager is, for example, really needs to have a consistent process with checking in with this person periodically. So maybe that's twice a month. Maybe that's once a month. How are you doing? How are things going? And really documenting those conversations so that if there are issues, you're not finding out about it, you know, when you get a letter from a lawyer that they've hired to either sue the company or negotiate a severance. So I'm hearing two things here loud and clear. One is in the code of conduct, you need to talk about no retaliation. Yes. That, that's an important part of the code. <laughs> Second, secondly, is that there needs to be a process post where you check in with the person, see how it's going, uh, confirm that it's going well, or if it's not going well, try to, try to take uh, appropriate action if, if it's not going well. Correct. Um, I have to say, I'm really enjoying this conversation. It's not a great topic, you know, certainly one of those topics I think most people don't even like talking about, uh, but it's an important topic, but uh, your knowledge is really impressive. And I, I'm learning a lot as I'm doing this. Um, so I, I, you know, appreciate where you're, where, where, you're, where, you're, where you're coming from. Let's start at the beginning, okay? I think we've done a good job kind of talking about things. If I'm a company, you know, I'm in the training department or I, I, it doesn't really matter where you are, um, where do you begin? What's the, what's the first step? You know, I'm, you know, I'm listening to you from the perspective of my company right. and you know, we, we fall flat, okay? We don't have a code of conduct. We've never conducted an audit. Now I must say, I think in my company, it'd be really difficult for there to be a problem because we've been virtual for eight years and everyone lives in their own home and the interaction with employees happens once a year um, and hasn't happened because of COVID for a long time. So I, I don't think we're in a high risk environment, you know, compared to if we work together, I think that there would be a different. That doesn't mean that people cannot be verbally abused. I mean, there, there could be problems. Right. Um, so where do I begin? Where do, where do, and, and, and obviously I, I don't mean for you to focus on me, but where, where do companies begin? Right. So one of the things that we recommend to companies, and you can do this yourself, you don't need triangle investigations for this, is to do a year in review and say, you know, how many complaints have we gotten about misconduct specifically or interpersonal issues between employees in the last year? And you can jot that down in a spreadsheet or in the notes section of your phone and say, okay, this is how the last year has looked. 
how have we responded to these? So did we just say, you know, you guys figure it out? Did we dig into it further to figure out if there were deeper issues? So that's the first step that any company can take, right? Looking at the past year or two and pinpointing kind of what trending issues are within your organization. You know, one of the things that we really try to impress upon clients is that the sexual harassment suit that an employee files against Google is the same sexual harassment suit that an employee will file against your company that has 25 employees. The difference is Google has the deep pockets to deal with it and most likely you don't, right? So for small organizations where, you know, you don't have the bandwidth internally to have a full investigations process, we can come in and do the investigation for you on a case-by-case -case basis. But then additionally, um, we can really help you set up processes to make sure that you don't get hit with a lawsuit, right? It has never been a defense in a lawsuit that we are just a startup or we are a small organization. Yeah. It, 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 that's not a defense. It, it doesn't work. So, you know, we had um, an investigation last year that was fascinating. Um, and what happened was employees of this particular organization had this pact right? It was like a very toxic work environment. This is a large global nonprofit. And the misconduct was being um, committed by the executive director. I mean, we're talking about workplace bullying, cyber bullying, sharing employees' personal medical histories with others. Like it was, it was a lot. So they had a pact and the turnover at this organization was so high that every time someone left the organization, they would go on Glassdoor and write a scathing review about their experience. And they started to stack up to the point that it finally got the attention of some very prominent and wealthy donors who said, you know, we're not giving money to your organization for it to be this type of workforce in this type of workplace. So we did a full investigation. And at the conclusion of the investigation, you know, the employee whose personal medical history had been shared said to us, you know, thanks so much. I feel so heard and validated. This is good because I hired a lawyer last week, but you know, I think I'm, think I'm gonna stay and I'm not gonna proceed with the lawsuit. And this is an organization where having to pay an employee hundreds of thousands of dollars would have been financially devastating for the organization. So, you know, we want to avoid that at all costs. And, you know, it's our hope that through doing investigations, when there's allegations of misconduct, we're really helping organizations avoid the threat of lawsuits from employees. Okay, I told you at the beginning in our prep that I like to ask tough and interesting questions. Okay. So I'm gonna ask you what I think is a tough question and I think one that people don't talk about a lot. Okay. And this has to do with age discrimination. And um, I, I being an older person, <laughs> am aware, um, I, I help a lot of people look for and find work. And when someone gets to being the double nickel, 55 or above, mm -hmm. it becomes very difficult. When someone gets to be 60, it becomes almost impossible. And then within organizations, um, promotions, um, upward uh, <laughs> promote, <coughs> excuse me, uh, promotions are, are difficult. Um, giving the appropriate responsibilities and things of that nature become more difficult the older they get. Right. Um, how do companies deal with that? And how do you prove something like that, which is a, 
a different kind of bias. Right. I see ads for job openings where they clearly say we're looking somebody in their mid part of their career. And I'm sitting here thinking, I know a little bit that's illegal. That is illegal. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely right. That's absolutely right. So age discrimination can be, it's it's very prominent and very prevalent. You're absolutely right about that. It also can be very difficult for the employee who's feeling the discrimination to prove it, right? Because, you know, someone's sexually harassing me or just, you know, making racially insensitive comments, that's, you know, that's easy to connect. But to say, you know, no one 55 or older has been promoted in this organization in three years, that's kind of harder to piece together from the employee's perspective. So one of the things we really encourage our clients to do is to be metrics focused. So really get into it and have a record keeping process for keeping track of who is being promoted, right? Who is getting raises? Who is getting demoted? Who um, has seemed to hit kind of a stagnant point within their career? Who's leaving and not staying with the organization? And when you really have that and get to a granular level and it exists on your computer screen and on a piece of paper, it can be very eye-opening with saying, wow, we have an issue with the retention and promotion of people 55 and older. How can we address that and how can we speak to that? So that's a recommendation that we give our clients who really wanna keep their finger on the pulse of what the employee experience is like for everyone, regardless of age. I, I like that. That's a. I think uh, the metrics and measuring is really great. Um, you know, also, you know, so, sort of on a, a similar note, um, when you let someone go who's over the age of 40, you need to be very careful that you are not doing so based on age. Right. And that you're, you know, you know, you're not replacing them with someone significantly younger because uh, that can be a liability for a company too. Absolutely. Um, anyhow, we're running out of time and I could probably talk to you forever. <laughs> um, so I know some of our listeners are really frustrated. I didn't ask you any questions about football, but before <laughs> we started, she told me she could not tell me anything about football, <laughs> but she said she knew about the flight gate for sure what the right answer was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joking. She did not say that. Uh, but um, Kia, I think there are a lot of people that would love to know a little bit more about your company, Okay. what you do, how to reach you. Uh, if you could share that, that would be awesome. Right. Absolutely. So like I said before, we really work with any and all organizations, small, midsize, large companies, corporations, church groups, schools, um, anywhere in which misconduct can occur. We can come in there and do an investigation on an ad hoc basis, um, you know, for a lot of organizations specifically that don't have the internal bandwidth to do those internally, you still have the liability associated with what happens if you don't conduct the investigation um, in a thorough and legally sound manner. Um, Additionally, we train investigators or your designated HR or employee relations person in best practices for conducting investigations. And then besides just kind of a high level view of best practices, really teaching them how to do 
an end-to-end -end investigation. One of the things that we offer at the conclusion of that training is a very straightforward investigative template for your organization to use for investigations to document the work that you've done so that God forbid, a lawsuit arises years later, you're able to show that you had a consistent and thorough process for investigating and documenting the work that you did on investigations. And then finally, we help organizations create their own codes of conduct and really walk them through the process of how are you disseminating the code of conduct to employees? How are you making employees aware of what the code of conduct is and what the consequences are for violating it. Um, our code of conduct services are very reasonably priced and much, 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 much less expensive than having to defend yourself in an expensive lawsuit because you didn't have a code of conduct and employees were behaving in ways that, that were really opening your organization up to legal liability. You know, it's interesting as I'm listening to you and I have one, your services sound great and sound, my guess is a lot of people listening probably need them. Um, at Tortal, we have a lot of clients that, you know, have restaurants and have like massage uh, studios and things of that nature. And, and they, generally speaking, do a really good job of training people on how to handle customers that are inappropriate. Right. And also they do a good job of explaining what they, what they as an employee can do and what they can't do and where the lines are. And, and I do think, you know, you know, because we have a lot of trainers here, having appropriate training that you can document that people have taken will do two things. Uh, one will reduce issues, which is, you know, the goal. And the other will be to document the seriousness in which the company, uh, you know, deals with these things. I, and I, at the beginning of this, I started with this, you know, whole thing about um, punitive damages. And, and, and I know this isn't the order of the questions at the end, but we're just gonna, we're gonna divert for a second here. Um, the, uh, you know, I, I think if you could just talk about punitive damages and the consequences to companies that what, you know, what happens when they don't handle things right, when they haven't done the appropriate training, you know, and you know, there's a law requiring everyone to have a certain amount of sexual harassment training every year uh, I believe the vast majority of companies don't do that right? Uh, until they have a problem. Right. Um, and you are a prosecutor, although this isn't homicide, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> maybe talk about the impact if you could for just a second and why, why, company, why companies get hit with punitive damages. Right, right. So companies get hit with punitive damages when a judge finds that your processes and procedures were so egregious that they're indefensible, right? So that you did not have a code of conduct and that you were made aware, for example, of seven claims of sexual harassment and did nothing about it. So, you know, judges can really apportion however they feel fit. So, you know, this, you know, this plaintiff is going to get this much in actual slash real damages. And the punitive damages is just because like, you really screwed this up, right? Like that's a very non-legalistic way of saying it. Um, but the sky's the limit in terms of how much money that can be. I mean, you know, a lot of times we hear about these cases with these massive lawsuits. Right. And you go, you know, oh, my God, that's so crazy. That's so unfair. But what they're really doing is saying to the company, you need to be punished 
because you were making no effort to protect this. And the damages are somewhat based on how big you are. Absolutely. Because, right? you know, they're not well, going to give my company a $2 billion fine. Uh, because they wouldn't give you a $2 billion, but, you know, depending on what the judge could decide, it might be $2 million. And what does that mean for your company, right? So, like, I always yeah. say, Google has $2 million. And I'm not trying to say, I'm not singling Google out. I'm just using that as an example, yeah. right? Say, you know, they have the money to, you know, you know, give people large severances and settle large losses, but the average small business does not. And even a judgment, let's say of $250,000 to a small company can be potentially disastrous. So, you know, we always say, you know, better to just invest and spend the money on the resources that, for example, our team offers than what you're going to get on the back end of not doing it because the legal fees alone for you to hire a lawyer and go through their process is significantly more than any amount of money that you're going to spend with us. So I, I just realized that we are, you know, there's always that question of what keeps you up at night. Right. Well, we're going to keep a few people up at night. <laughs> <laughs> so Kia, Kia um, I know you have, we, we are, we are at the end. Um, I know you have an offer for our listeners. And if you would please share your offer, that would be awesome. Absolutely. So if you reach out to us and you mention this um, podcast, we are able to give you your code of conduct specifically tailored for your organization at a discounted rate. So reach out to us specifically. Our website is www.triangleinvestigations.com. And let's talk about how we can help you and help you not stay up at night. <laughs> yes, but get a good night's sleep. Uh, Kia, we also end with what's your one tip that you would share with this audience? And I guess I'll ask, what is your one tip? My one tip is that every organization needs to conduct at least a year in review, which is looking with your HR person or whoever that might be and pinpointing what the last year has looked like for specific claims of misconduct or just general employee relations concerns. Look at it, write it down, make a list, and then start to think through what's the path that your organization needs to take. Training that leaps is brought to you by Total Training, specializing in e-learning and uh, interactive Kira, online training solutions for so corporate, government, really non-profit, and franchise welcome. organizations. I want, of course, Total makes effective here. training easier. No show Just go to Total.net to gain access to real-world tools for can make a difference. That's Total.net, T-O-R-T-A-L, Total. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.